up that six foot five teenager over there. That's what I'm, <laughs> no. I'm trying to win. You Fuck say that, me. but you actually can't turn it off. You find the worst basketball player who wants to play the most, and you're like, I'm going to take you under my wing <laughs> so that you man, will. I'm sick of losing. The kid we played last time, he couldn't catch the ball, man. Oh, my God. And see, we still almost beat the kids we were playing. We still almost beat them. People see me, but they just don't know. What I told you, cut People see me, but they just don't know. We just had um, the most roughest of the roughest run-throughs right before this. We're coming back after a six-month, um, you know, just break for a moment. But welcome to the Poetry Gods. Um, we are we are so blessed today to have with us um, the great and wonderful Tim Siebels. Dare I say that's the result? That's like the cause of our rough start, where it's like a little <laughs> nervous. You know, we're trying to put our best foot forward. <laughs> but you know, before all that, we we got to go back to basics, and we're gonna just start with the classic season two. Season two. New season. New season. Same podcast. And and we're gonna just be asking folks, what? <laughs> on. You're mine. <laughs> Yo, John, what's on your mind? Okay, uh, so I have many things on my mind, but one thing that has really stayed with me for for the last week uh, is so my uh, I've like my nephew, as as those of you who listen know, I have a very good relationship with my nephews and my niece, uh, and my oldest nephew is seven years old, and I had written a poem about him when he was two years old. He he wasn't able to crawl when he first. Uh, started moving, he actually, like, never crawled. He was one of those, like, one in a thousand children who um, were scooters, you know? Like, he would sit with his palms to the floor and his butt and scoot his way across the floor (laughs) to get where he was going. And there's this video of him when he's two, and he's scooting along the floor as he was wont to do, uh, and he scoots up to a mirror, and he's wearing, like, a vest and tie, like they were going to a wedding of some kind. And he, uh, you know, sees his reflection in the mirror, kind of knows what it is, kind of doesn't, and leans in and kisses it, and then kisses it again for, like, 45 seconds. He makes out with his own reflection in the mirror. Uh, In what can only be described as, like, very intimate. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to show it to him when he's, when he's 16. Yeah. Gotta, gotta I mean, it was such a special moment and I'm like sitting in Brooklyn and I'm watching it and I you know I'm in the middle of a 30 poems in 30 days challenge which I was very grateful for because you know like maybe I wouldn't have written a poem about it but it was the only thing on my mind and I wrote a poem about it 
And I thought I was just going to be documenting, you know, this beautiful thing I saw. Uh, but the poem landed on uh, what ended up being kind of a, a somber note of what it is to... It's called Internet as a Concept is Not Inspiring. Uh, it, but it does, like, allow these unbelievable moments to be on your phone. But it felt very, very clear, like, the final note of the poem is that being almost there is a kind of distance, like, is a mm. kind of pain. It almost, like, draws in the negative of, like, how far you are when you can almost touch but not quite. Mm. And he's old enough now that I was talking to him on the phone and I, like, never conceived a time where I would say... Uh, hey, I wrote a poem about you, seven-year-old who I love, and you're old enough now to know what a poem is on some level. Mm -hmm. You're old enough to, like... I was like, do you know what I do for a writer? He's like, I don't know what you do, Uncle John. I was like, well, I write poems. <laughs> I talk to people about them. He's like, and I was like, I wrote a poem about you. And it was so crazy. I love this kid more than maybe most things in the world. And he was like, can I hear it? And I got so shy. Mm. I, like, immediately <laughs> didn't share it with him. I, like, told him about it. I was like, well, it's a very happy poem because you did this, and we laughed about it. And I was oh, like, and wow. it was kind of sad, but for whatever reason, like, I didn't share it with him. And I was like, man, I'll share it with you next time I see you. And then I saw him again, and I didn't. And I'm curious, mm. I guess, like, you know, when it works the best, like, when I'm reading a poem or when I'm writing a poem, like, the intimacy of it is so clear when the when it's good and I'm kind of amazed that I didn't take the like vulnerable step of letting that bridge into my everyday life and I'm sure I will share it with him but I was like why did that feel so scary and so vulnerable to like talk to my seven-year-old nephew yeah. about how much I love him huh. and so I'm still just kind of like thinking about it uh, and thinking about all of the work that goes in to making something and then, all of a sudden, like a whole new journey that is like trying to find the practical application of the creative work that you make. Uh, yeah, just so you guys know, we're in the downs. We're at AWP in the downs basement of a hotel. So every once in a while, you're gonna hear a clang, and that's just how you know that we're very, uh, you know, we're a very real podcast. <laughs> you know so that's that's what's on my mind. That's what's on my mind. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, it's, like, hyper-vulnerable, you know? Like, telling someone I got this thing about you. And then for that to also be a kid, you know? That kid's going to, like, just tell you what they think, you know? They're not going to be like, oh, that was real nice. Or thanks for writing that. Be like, why'd you say that about me? Or, you know, like, potentially... He could have, like, the ill critique. And they would just be like, oh, fuck, what do I do? This little kid's cutting. So I don't know. I, I could see why. So I could see why there would be some hesitation. I, I think I also just did an all-ages reading in D.C. Uh, not too long ago, and there was, like, a three-year-old child in the front row who just walked up on stage in the middle of the set and, like, calls me down to whisper in my ear. And I, like, lean down, and he goes... You don't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh man, there you go. Thank you. Okay. That's what we all fear. Right? <laughs> okay, so that's that's me, uh, Aziza. Oh, what's on your mind? What's on my mind? Um, my goodness, I think what's on my mind right now is. I've just been thinking a lot about the word gratitude lately. So it's not even so much an event, but just like a thing. I'm just like, okay, gratitude and grace. And 
This is what's on my mind. So the other day, I was in L.A., and I just seen my homie Bo. Shout out to Bo Sia, most excellent. Lovely. And, um, you know, he's teaching me some self-defense stuff. And I was like, okay, this is, this is good. And I get this Lyft driver, and I'm starting to feel like... You know, all the, all these like negative feelings are coming up in in my body, and I'm like, okay, what do I do with them? And I get this Lyft driver, and he's just like pure grace, cause mm-hmm. he comes through. We're in like these windy hills, and he somehow finds me. His name is Bryant, and the moment I get in the car, he's just like, child, I'm so glad I found you. And I'm just like, okay, word, this is this is excellent, and like. <laughs> We're talking, and he's just like, oh, child, you're an artist. You're an artist. I already know. And everything's going to be okay. And this is grace. And just, like, was grace epitome. And we had the exact same hairstyle. And every, I was just like, this is the strangest encounter. But, like, for an hour, he was just talking to me about, like, his life and how he was living in Boston and, like, doing this theater stuff. And now like, he came to L.A. And at one point, he said, like, and, child, my whole career, I thought, like, oh, don't focus on the money. Don't focus on the money and my one advice to you is focus on the money <laughs> just focus on it <laughs> and I was like this dude is fucking excellent and so I'm just like at, in every step at every moment I'm trying to employ his name was Brian shout out to you Brian and the Lyft driver in Los Angeles I'm trying to employ the wow. grace of Brian and just like okay okay there will be grace there will be grace absolutely so that's, that's what's been in my head Man, more often than not and it was an hour, so it was did, the, an hour. did the ride last an hour? Did you park? The ride last an hour. But then we parked outside of, like, my homie's house, and we were just kikiing for, like, another 15 mm-hmm. minutes. And he was just telling me, like, yo, like, you're you're good. I could already tell. Like, and this is, I just was, like, laughing and chopping it up. I was like, who is this angel person mm-hmm. named Brian? And he's teaching me about grace and the Lyft driver situation. Mm-hmm. I, I felt very good about that. So I'm bringing that here. It feels so good to like see folks here and employ that, and especially in AWP, which is like so fly and so much. Mm. It's like, all right, I'm gonna mm. walk with Bryant here. I'm gonna walk around with my Lyft driver <laughs> constantly. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah yo, y'all say what's on your mind. I am. I'm also at AWP. You know what I mean? <laughs> so from Chicago, where I'm hosting all my events, this is AWP. Um, I guess uh, that came up for me listening to uh, to you and John talk about uh, what's on your mind. I guess what's on my mind right now is I had lunch with a friend earlier, and you know they were asking me. So I just moved back to Chicago. I was living in New York. Now I'm living in Chicago, and it's only been two weeks, and and my friend was asking me about the transition and how it's been, and it's also good, like, I'm also about to turn 29 years old, Uh, and I can feel, like, this old knowledge kind of, like, surfacing my body, like, all, whenever I get close to my birthday, like, no matter, no matter what age or how I'm feeling, like, I, I kind of, like, somehow, like, I get into a funk. There's, like, a funk that surfaces from within me, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, when I was having this conversation, like, I could feel, I could feel it, like, starting, like, a fog was starting to, 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 to come through, and I'm, and I've just been really curious as to, like, 
where where this comes from and you know why why like I can't seem to shake it no matter like what kind of I, and I have no idea what it has to do with I don't know if it's like yeah I don't know if it's like some memory I don't know if it's you know unfulfilled expectations I don't know if it's just like that I like that there's an expectation that I'd be really jubilant and celebratory and I'm just mm. <laughs> you know overwhelmed by that pressure but I, I just I feel it like you know it feels like something that I can't sort of outrun something that just sort of always surfaces from within so so I'm thinking about where where these types of like memories and these knowledges exist because I feel it at different parts of the year I'll either like get very happy or I'll like get very low but there, there seems to be like a pattern there you know what I'm saying man and you have I mean I don't know if this relates to that new poem that you have but you read a poem at that at this reading a couple weeks ago that was about like bringing your monsters into the room and about like the impossibility of eliminating a monster but like getting to know them better like is that mm-hmm. part of what you're talking about yeah you know yeah part of it yeah you know I was thinking that poem I was thinking about something different I was thinking about you know my, my tendency to sort of run away from, or at least traditionally to run away from like sadness, right? Mm. And and like through the process of going to therapy and getting older, have like stopped seeing sadness as something to run away from. You know what I mean? Like I, I kind of feel like now I think sadness is like another color on the palette, right? Like mm. it's part of what like gives shape and vibrancy to the days, and it's not necessarily pleasant, but it's also not it's not something to necessarily run away from it. it it helps it adds something to the happiness you know what I mean I don't know if I'm making sense no no um, yes absolutely so, um, I, was, I, I don't want to interrupt you but uh, there's a there's a, a poem by Rumi and he talks about um, how your, your heart and or your mind is visited by many many beings and at least what I got from it was that he was talking about feelings and visions and I think yeah, I mean, sadness is a visitor. You know, just like happiness, mm-hmm. they don't stay. Like they, they visit, and I think. And his thing was, if you're, if you're receptive to those things, then you know, you 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 can lower the quotient of fear in your life, and you just embrace things as they come, and and it makes you makes you larger rather than smaller, which fear always does. It fear always makes you smaller. Yeah, that fear thing. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So maybe that's a good. Transition. That was uh, Tim Siebel's, who you heard, Wool Shift. First question of the, the interview portion of the podcast. <laughs> What's on your mind? Uh, well, a lot of things. Um, uh, we were talking about this this morning in one of the sessions, the idea of uh, uh, the body as a metaphor. Like if you imagine your body as a kind of embassy as opposed to just this kind of object, and it's like a place, it's... The, the fundamental yearning of the body is connection, and that is the same yearning we have as people, you know, psychologically. I mean, you know, we want to, we have company, right? We want to have friends, lovers, whatever. And uh, that's what's been ticking in my brain a lot. Like, yeah, if we could, if we reimagined our physical beings as embassies, it would change the whole dynamic in terms of how we interact. And I don't mean only in the erotic sense, but I'm just saying in the sense of how we might imagine living in community with each other as opposed to seeing our, our bodies 
in terms of like fortresses or like I got mine, you got yours, and maybe you know we might connect. But the idea that like like the body exists as a vehicle for connection. Mm -hmm. If you think of the body in those terms, it changes the way you imagine the larger human world. You know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you talk about. I'm not sure I'm making sense either. But yeah. th those are things that are itching <laughs> in my brain right now. Among and the thing and, and it's rooted in. I was up here for the for the big march. You know, uh, the day after um, he who shall not be named. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who got an office, and uh, and I don't know. I just it just made me think really hard about exactly what shapes the resistance to such people might take, <laughs> and and because you had every constituency, every constituency was, was there, you know, from disabled people, you know, I mean, from the whole spectrum, and I think, and everybody to one degree or other recognized that we had a, this common ground. And I thought, now that's real resistance, because as long as you see, if you, we all have our little parties, our little, like, I'm over here, I need this, you're over there, you need that, and never the twain shall meet. If you have that, then, you, I mean, you're that much weaker, right? But if you start to recognize that the issues of women are the issues of men, the issues of black yeah. people are the issues of white people. Like all these things yeah. are connected. It changes the dynamics of the whole idea of resisting racism, oppression, uh, um, legalized quote unquote violence. It, just, it changes the dynamic of, of how we might respond to that. And that's been itching in my brain too. And that, then that connected to this thing about the body. And I thought, yeah, I mean, half the half of the problems, and I will not go on like a madman because I can. Um, half the problems uh, in the world is that we we underimagine, you know, the possibilities of what it is to be human. We underimagine it, you know. And people, I think, and people don't recognize that that's part of the game that's being run on us. Mm -hmm. You know, to imagine ourselves in smaller and smaller terms rather than larger and larger. Mm -hmm. And so that's, to me, that's the uh, that's the the unspoken conspiracy against most of us. The idea that we would think only in certain terms, as opposed to being more expansive. I really do think that uh, it's worth uh, it's worth wrestling with what it is that we're being invited not to see. Not what we're being invited to see, but we're invited not to see. That's that, that intrigues. So, what's the catalyst then that moves imagination into action? You know, like I just think of sometimes that imagination is this profound thing, and it can be very satisfying. On its own, it can be very self-gratifying on its own. You're like, oh man, I imagine a joint resistance, and so it is so. And the wait a second, like three days pass, and I'm still on Facebook. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I so where? Yes, I do. Well, I think, I mean, part of it. I mean, the reason people march or or chant or whatever they do to to respond to something that feels wrong is that. Part of imagination, part of imagination, not all, not all imagination, but part of the energy of the imagination is first manifesting what you really wish in the world in your head, and then you act because you're trying to manifest the thing that you imagined in the in the visible world. You know, because you can only live in your head so much. There's a certain point at which I want to feel out here <laughs> what I feel in here. And mm -hmm. so when you step out and, or you shout or write poems, for example, that's, that's a gesture towards saying, but yeah, but isn't this something that we feel? Isn't this something that can be can be added to the to the human mix. Isn't this possible? Because yeah, you have all kinds of possibilities in your head, but but I think the part art in general is all about making manifest outwardly what was first uh, manifest inwardly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about that word manifest a lot too. Like just bringing forth the thing that you want and thinking a lot about like what this country has manifested and, mm -hmm. and about desire and about like the things in our head and living in our head. That's really incredible. I like what you said about the body too as an embassy. That's that's yeah, you know, what, what you said about the body as an embassy, I think about how sometimes even you know, so-called positive idioms, right? Like, I think about, you know, this idea that the body, you know, people will be like, your body is your palace, you know what I mean? Or whatever yeah. that thing is. And how even yeah, that kind of, like, reinforces the idea that the body is, one, solitary, and two, yes. like, to be protected from the outside yes. world. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Wow. Mm. Yes. And, and that, to me, is, is a fundamentally an incorrect way of imagining ourselves. If at some point we really imagine a world in which war will become obsolete and all these various hatreds, God, you can go down the list if you want, but they will become obsolete too. If, if we are willing to imagine a world in the absence of such nightmares, then I think it, our, our, the, the, the change begins in how we imagine ourselves. And of course, we are manifest in the world as, as bodies. So I really think that's just a fundamental thing we have to re rethink. So let's maybe shift gears. Like, where did you grow up? I grew up in Philadelphia, and uh, uh, then I lived in Texas for a while. I went to college in Texas at SMU. I, at the time, I was imagining myself a football player. Mm. Um, and you know, I went to college. And Wait, you, did you play college football? I did. Seriously, but I, I, was, I was no star. But you know, I was out there. I got I got hit and hit a little. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, but uh, and then out of nowhere, uh, they start a creative writing emphasis within Engl the English major. Hmm. I mean, I'd never heard of such a thing. I, if you had said, asked me what creative writing was, I would say I, I have no idea. Mm. It was a new thing, you know. <laughs> and so and so, I just stumbled. I like to write, you know. But I I saw see what creative writing is and of course that changed my whole life you know mm -hmm. that was it you know from that point on because I when I thought about writing I mostly thought about novels or stories short stories you know but the the man who uh, taught the uh, class was a poet his name is Michael Ryan he's still alive he teaches at UC Irvine okay. uh, and uh, wow. man and he started talking about poetry and I didn't know I mean I didn't know as much about poetry as he did of course and so I was like oh man poetry so my head just blew up, and I was it. I was 19. I, mm. Ever since then, I was thinking, poetry, I must write poems. I'm sure my parents thought I'd lost my mind, which maybe I had. But, um, <laughs> but that's where, so that, that started that. Then I taught high school down there um, for another 10 years. Wow. And then I ended up at the, how did I leave town? I ended up at the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center as a fellow. I got a, a fellowship to go there. Wow. And that's how I left. Texas, you know, I left mm. from Philly to Texas, Texas, back up to New England, and then, um, this is very short history, but then I got, uh, I was applying for jobs, and I got a, a, a interview at Old Dominion University in Virginia, which is where I am now, mm. and so, well, how long have you that's been my in? life, 21 years. Wow. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> Literally never done anything for 21 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You got time. <laughs> when I got there, I was 40. I hadn't done anything for 21 years either. <laughs> <laughs> was there like an initial 
piece of poetry or art when you were first like getting into that in the creative writing? Maybe oh. where you were like, oh god, well, I, I think, think I might. What was really, what really probably did it for me was. Um, um, Michael Ryan would every every class would begin. He would just read poems to us by different people that he really liked. Mm. Just read people, read poems, and he was like he was super passionate, you know, when he'd read, you know. And I remember thinking, listening to him, even though I didn't get everything that was happening in the poems. I mean, I didn't know shit about how poetry it really worked, but I was getting some things. But what the most important thing I got from him was like, like this this kind of wellspring of real feeling of like being present in your own life. Mm -hmm. That's what I got. And I thought, I want to live like that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to live like, yeah, someday I'm going to be awake. Now I'm just going to work and mm -hmm. save my money and wear a tie. And, I mean, I just thought, nah, you just got to do something else. Now, of course, I was also a child of the 60s, and I had people who I loved. My, Hendrix, was my, Hendrix and King were my first like huge spiritual guides, you know? And so, uh, and so I, I wasn't going to be king, and I, I, although I do play guitar, I probably wasn't going to be Hendrix either. And poetry felt like, in, in my own much younger mind, like a vehicle for I could make manifest what I had felt made real by them. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably what it really was. I still have Hendrix and King's pictures in my wallet, and they've been there like 40 years. Wow. <laughs> Wait, know? the same pictures it's the for same 40 pictures. years? They're still in there. Let me see if I can pull yeah, them out. <laughs> They're, wow. they're going to turn to dust eventually. <laughs> but they've been in there a long, long time. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, there it yeah, is. For those of you listening, yeah. it is confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> and on the back, there's King. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> and they've been there forever. <laughs> so, yeah, those are my spirit guides. Yeah. And, uh, and so, but I mean, as I said, my, my impulses were more verbal probably than musical, but I love music. And, um, and I was too... Um, I don't know, I was too dissatisfied with the orthodoxies of most religions to ever imagine myself being, you know, talking in religious terms, at least in the traditional sense. And so, and so that's, that's what shaped my life, these different forces of different kinds. And then, you know, with my own kind of madness, you know, tossed in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that with my own kind of madness. Like, what what feeds that madness for you? Like, because I, I remember, like, for us teaching up at Poet Link, um, we were really drawn um, to your poems. You had two poems, one about um, a lobster, another oh, yeah. about roadrunner. Lobster runner. for sale. Lobster yeah, for sale. Yeah, yeah. And, like, with that, with those kind of joints, like, what, what feeds the madness? What feeds you to, to focus on these things? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because, in part, that's as much a mystery to me as it is to anybody. Mm. Um, but it, it, what I can say is that there are things that, you know, start, for lack of a better term, they start to itch in your brain, you know, mm -hmm. they just start to itch, you know, so, so okay, the lobster for sale, for example, all right, so you sometimes, you know, you go into a grocery store or whatever, and you see those tanks, and they have all the lobsters, and they got their, uh, those rubber bands around their claws and mm -hmm. all that, because they don't yeah. want them to hurt each other, and it's also a way of making sure the lobsters don't hurt them, mm -hmm. you know, the people who are going to reach in right. and get them, right, and so, so I see that, and, uh, and of course you start to think metaphorically, right? I mean, I, mean, I shouldn't say of course, maybe everybody doesn't, but, but, uh, but I look in there and I'm thinking, that is a kind of incarceration, right? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that lobsters think the way we do, but you know, you're sitting there and you're staring and you know, they seem to be looking back out at you and suddenly, you know, there's this kind of world that starts to develop in my head about if the lobster 
could speak, what would the lobster say? And of course, it's partly my own mind that's being, you know, realized in that moment. It's not, I have no idea what a lobster would think, if anything. Um, and so that kind of thing. So of course, you know, you think about mass incarceration, you think about the ways in which people of many backgrounds, many colors, are psychologically conscripted in a certain way. And so then that poem gets to talk about that. Because some people can read that just being about lobsters, and that's cool. Mm -hmm. You can, you mm -hmm. can. Um, I have another poem called Dogs, um, which is also trying to talk about, you know, uh, power and power and or lack thereof, uh, depending on how you see the society. And a lot of people think, oh, wow, you must care a lot about dogs. I'm thinking, I, I do, I love dogs. <laughs> but that poem is about power. <laughs> it's not only about dogs. Mm -hmm. And the Lobster for Sale poem is also, it's about, about power and it's also about helplessness. And it's also about rage. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, but I mean, it's understated, and not that not that anybody should necessarily know that, but uh, but uh, I, so those are things. You know, you're trying to get at things, at least for me as a poet, you're trying to get at things that are often not gotten to. Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, I thought, how can I talk about some of these things? I mean, I could just say yes. I think it's terrible that there's incarceration. People <laughs> won't say yeah, of course, whatever. But if you can kind of um, sneak a certain idea into someone's psyche without them fully understanding exactly what's being discussed, the later discovery kind of can be like a kind of, um, I don't know, it's like slipping a hand grenade in somebody's head, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then they're like, oh, you mean that? That's not just about lobsters? And then maybe they have a whole another set of ideas about what it is that language can do, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and what it is that, uh, 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 you know, how, how many ways that we're blind, how many ways that we don't see. We look at things and don't see things at the same time, which is all the time, I think, too, too often. Wow. Yeah, that's the stuff that drives me to write, really trying to get it. The thing, to say the things that I think have to be said or the things that I wish could be said, you know, you can name the subject, doesn't matter to me. I, there's so much that just dies in the silence in so many cases. Hmm. Do you know when you're starting that poem that it's about incarceration, or are you, you initially like, yeah, you oh, man, something's going on yeah, 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 with yeah, the yeah. lobsters, yeah, and I'm going to start me, there and find out? Now, for some people, they may know right away right. that they're operating a certain way with metaphor, but but uh, for me, uh, you know, first you get this, this, as I said, itch in the brain. You think, you know, I want to say something. What would... If a lobster could speak, what <laughs> lobster say? And at the time, you're just trying to play with that. Just the idea that what kind of mind may be behind those long-stemmed eyes and, you know, all that, you know? And, and then, and then uh, the thing about uh, incarceration or the idea of, of the lobsters really being in there, really pissed that they're in there, and really seeing us as objects just like we see them as objects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, because people, of course, human beings, you know, imagine that the world is really all about them, but mm -hmm. the other creatures don't think that. <laughs> you know? it's, and it's so, an incredible line yeah. where, where you say, you know, the, the lobster speaking, and the lobster says, you know, you think I'm groceries. That always, always rocks me. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Because I do, I, I do, I look at the lobsters and I'm 
That's what I think. I'm All like, you are dinner. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that, so you're trying to get at that, too. You're trying to do that thing where you tilt perspective, too, you know, because, I mean, because our brains are so big, we're blinded by what we, what we think of as our intelligence, but it's both a help and a hindrance in some ways because arrogance comes along with these big brains, and that blinds us, you know? Mm-hmm. I have a question... It might take me a second to get there. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, so I, I, I've been coming back to the same poem recently. Uh, and it's a poem by Solmaz Sharif that's from the book, you know, a little quote that was like, you know, up until my 30th year, all of my poems were, you know, something like polite disobediences or something like mm-hmm. that. I can't exact phrase. But it, it, when I read that, it, it like stung in a way because I immediately was like I had written recently and was like is this well wondering right wondering if it was just polite disobedience mm-hmm. and I guess what it got me thinking about was uh, one of one of the so Buffalo Head Solos is a book that I return to a lot and, and it, you know and I love the poems but also there's an incredible introduction to that book where you talk about how how you know if we're going to be fiddlers on the roof shouldn't we like fiddle until it starts smoking you know what I mean like this idea that like even if it, it's and so I guess what I'm what, what I want to ask is like how I, I don't I don't actually know I don't know what my question is. Well, <laughs> well, 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 you were you heading toward how or what does it mean to to play the thing till it smokes? Is that what you're heading to? Yeah, maybe. I guess I'm I'm wondering. I'm thinking about like how easy it is to kind of bow politely and and make attempts at, at resistance mm-hmm. or that that still kind of gets you a, a pat on the head. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Oh, and have yeah. like break free from that, you know oh, what yeah. I mean, like, what it really means to, to, like, disregard those pats on the head and, and, and the acceptable ways to resist and the acceptable ways to write poems that, that go towards resistance, does that make sense? Yes, it does. <laughs> it makes perfect sense, actually. And I think, well, I think you've got your finger on a really complicated issue because, on the one hand, you certainly want to be published, you know, you don't want people to say, you know, you don't want to not be published. On the other hand, you want to say the things that you really mean. And so the challenge to me as a, as a poet is to say the, try to say the, the things in, the, in a way that I feel is essential and true to what I'm really feeling or, or seeing in the world. And at the same time, not having people say, oh, he's just another angry brother. You know, you're trying to figure out a way to widen the voice so much that it contains certainly the rage that is particular to people of color in this country, but also, you know, a rage that is, is that is all-encompassing in a certain way or that speaks to various aspects of angst on everyone's part. You know, I don't really... So many things, times we talk about uh, issues as though they are really re- reside strictly in a particular community, the gay community, the black community, the poor community, the working white class community, but I really think there's always overlap. And, it, and if your approach is, um, is imaginative enough, this, we go back to that word again, if your approach is imaginative, maybe there's some way in which you can touch upon many types of unrest, and that can be both true... <laughs> 
Damn. <laughs> it can be true, but at the same time, you don't feel like you've sold your soul. You know, I mean, on the one hand, I didn't say that quite right. The, the idea is certainly I want to write poems that are beautiful in however you want to imagine that word. But at the same time, if they don't feel really true or if it feels like my main goal was acceptance or publication, then that's bullshit and no one cares. I don't care about that kind of work. I don't. But I do think there's a territory that we can explore as artists in which we do say the essential things that may be, I guess, what would you say impolite, you know, but at the same time, say them in such a way that they are very difficult to dismiss. See, to me, that is the artistry that we're trying to get at. I mean, because, I mean, you think of, like a really interesting, I think a possible parallel is like, we think about Hendrix, what Hendrix did. People don't talk about Hendrix very much, but that's all right. That happens, right? But like what Hendrix did, I mean, if you, if you know much about music, and I don't know a lot, but I know some. He was definitely working with traditional ideas of mode, scale, uh, you know, various kinds of harmony. But what, what he did is, through amplification and reimagining the voice of the guitar, mm. the voice was what changed the way people heard it, what he was doing. So, yeah, you could say, you know, could Hendrick, did Hendrix know how to play a key? Absolutely. Did he understand probably God knows more than I do about guitar, you know, in terms of you know, minor keys, major keys, mixing those different modes and all that stuff. But and, you, yeah. and if he had stayed there, people would have said, boy, he's a really good guitar player. And that was what he would have been, really good. But what he did to the voice was so different, so strange, that even in the context of traditional ideas about harmony and melody and all that, it still transformed the way he was heard. That's what I would like to do with poetry. Hmm. The idea that I'm using traditional syntax. I use both standard and non-standard English as though, you know, however you might imagine that. But at the same time, if you can bring enough imagination and energy to it and daring to it, daring is really important, which is what he was all about, was courage. Nobody, people didn't know what the hell he was doing at first, but nobody's forgotten it since. Um, or nobody who listens forgotten it anyway. But if you're daring enough, then perhaps you do something that on the surface might appear like, oh yeah, I recognize this. But truthfully, if you're paying attention, something that is not uh, familiar is happening to you and that to me is, is the thing so you're trying to to both play I mean you, you can't just write shit backwards or you know all kinds of stuff and nobody knows the hell you're talking about I mean that doesn't matter yes people would say boy that's really different but nobody knows the hell you're talking about so you want to be able to make, you want to be able to make sense and at the same time you want um, your efforts to manifest both in simple terms but also in really disturbing terms at the same time. That's what I'm trying to do. The last poem in that book, um, Really Breathing and, and Buffalo Head Solo, yeah, yeah. Really that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say, like, I'm using straight syntax and stuff, but I'm trying to get at things in a way that people are not expecting so that, and believe me, not everybody wants to hear that poem. And not, not the poems I write, especially in the new book, there's the poem at the center, the, the title poem. I'm sure people will be pissed off in some ways about that, but I, you can't, how how much can you care about that? You can't care about so much. All I can do is be invested in, you know, how well I can construct uh, the, the movement and, the, and the, uh, the tension of the poem and say the things that are essential. And if people don't like it, I mean, what can you do? I can't write poems to be liked. It's nice if people like them, but if they don't, you got you got to stand. I think you got to stand by you know your word. You have to stand by that first, you know. Otherwise, otherwise you end up selling yourself. 
I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of the literary or the poetry world. Not that everybody, you know, if you go around, a, you know, like a restaurant table, you could find a lot of poems that people don't like. Yeah. But, you know, if you're a musician and you're successful, then you have tens of thousands of people who are saying in very documented public yeah, yeah, ways yeah. that you are trash. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. but in the poetry world, it doesn't really exist like that. Unless Not you've like done that. something foul, right. people aren't online just being like, no, I just like, your poems are trash. Yeah. And th- there is something that, you know what I mean? Like, unless they are offensive oh, in some way, happen. then that's, like, that's a different thing. But I do wonder sometimes, like, yeah. that means, so that we just got a, our first uh, two-star rating on our podcast. Yeah, you know? yeah. We've had, we had a lot of like great ratings. Mm-hmm. And it's so abnormal in the, in like in what we do to get overt negative feedback. A lot of times, like, if you're a comedian, you get laughs. You know what I mean? If you're a musician, I don't know what you get. But, like, do you ever feel like your relationship to being (laughs) beloved in this community? Because you're right. I'm sure, like, maybe somebody's going to read that poem in the middle of the book, but you're probably not going to hear about it. Nobody's going to, like, probably... Probably not. I mean, maybe, right? But, like... There's a certain relationship in the literary community to being beloved that I wonder if that manifests in a kind of like creative conservativeness. Yeah, those are excellent questions. There's a chapter actually in a book. God, I think Dobbins has a uh, Stephen Dobbins wrote a book of uh, poetry related issues, uh, and he talked about um, self censorship and thinking too much about what other people might think about your work. And that's what you're talking about. Like, it's nice. I mean, now to me, I guess I've become, quote, unquote, successful as a poet. Now, of course, I'm really just discovering this now because people keep saying, every time I say, you know, I'm just doing whatever, people are like, nah, man, nah, I've heard about you and blah, this and blah, that. And I'm like, oh, okay, so maybe it's a little bit bigger deal than I think it is what I'm doing. So, and that's lovely, and I am thrilled that people think that. Of course. But uh, it's, it's very complicated. I, when I'm writing, I'm God. I hope I'm not thinking about. I hope everybody likes this. I mean, you, you write a book, you want you certainly want the respect of your peers, if possible, and, and certainly if you have an audience of any kind, you hope that they'll say, "Oh, good, we like this too." But like this next book is is different than the other books. I mean, more markedly so in certain ways. So I think, well, people might think, "Damn, see, this is getting strange," or. Where's he going with this? And I'm like, yeah, think about that. But what can you do? You you can only you have to do the work that you feel called to. I mean, to me, that that's what integrity means, right? You have to stand by the thing that you are, are called to, mm-hmm. and it may or may not always work out in your favor. That's the thing, right? I mean, if you're lucky and you have a certain kind of talent, and maybe maybe it's a, simply about being really a hard worker. I mean, I don't know. However, man, genius of whatever kind manifests. So I think about. I always often think about people like Hendrix. Everyone would talk about how much he practiced. Like, he practiced insanely. They said he would forget to eat, and he would just keep practicing. I'm thinking, well, maybe it's that kind of rigor that allows you to take the risks or to be daring in your work and allows you whatever skill means. It allows you the skill to say these things that might be dangerous or might be discomforting in some way. Uh, without people hating you. I don't know, but you are correct, man. It's very hard to figure. I mean, because you're right. People are generally not going to boo when you walk in the room if they don't like your poems. That's generally true. But 
But you don't want, I mean, I just, as I said, the only hope I have for my own work is that I have the guts to say the things that I really, really, really mean. And, you know, and it can't just be a, a scream and a fart, right? I gotta, I gotta I do, right? You know, I gotta do something more than that, right? So how do I shape, you know, what is probably in many ways a long wail in my gut? How do I shape it in such a way that it is heard and understood and useful in some way to somebody else? That to me is the, is the whole, the whole thing. Like, how do you do it without just falling apart? So, uh, Hmm. And that's that's the battle to me. How do you do it? I'm interested too, like mm-hmm. in, in going back to like how you got into to writing the books. But before writing the books, like when you were playing football and like in that transition, yeah, like did you? What was that? Do you know what I mean? Like you're, you know, you're playing. What position did you play? I was a wide receiver. I had the big wow. hands, right? Right. Oh wow! I thought I could catch anything. <laughs> yeah. So like, so like, do you know? Did you feel like, oh, I have to, you know, like, give up, like, what, what I was doing before, or, like, you know, to really commit? Like- well, well, truthfully, by the time I, when I, once I finished the first workshop, it was already pretty clear that I was not headed to the NFL. Mm. So it wasn't nearly as di- difficult a trans- transition as it might have been, like, mm-hmm. if I had been Antonio Brown or somebody who was, like, super talented on the football field, you know? And, I mean, I, I believe certainly that I was talented and all that, yes, but there are dudes who are just faster and better at that than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that saved me, I think, from really, really feeling conflicting, because I love sports. Still, you know, I play I play tennis, you know, every week, and and you know, you still trying to stay athletic and all this. Um, but uh, but saving is that my interior life, you know, for lack of a better uh, term, really just started to take more and more take more and more space in my life. I just started. I kind of fell in love with thinking hmm. and poetry and, and literature in general, but poetry in particular was a way that I could really work with that. Football was not, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So the transition wasn't really as rough mm-hmm. as it could have been, you know? So who knows? I mean, part of me, I think, well, if the coach had been different and they'd given me more time on the field and I had gotten, would, I, would it have changed the way I approached uh, the world mm-hmm. of poetry? I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't work that way, so I'll never know. Uh, but, I mean, I think at a certain point, we, we have these powerful impulses uh, in us as as children even and if we're lucky at some point in our lives we find the thing that lets us make that whatever that impulse is like it becomes a real it be, we get something that will allow us to shape it you know what I mean? Like, say, for example, I think about my own mind, and I, I tend to be pretty verbal, and I love to read and all that stuff. Well, if I try to imagine myself 200 years ago in bondage, illiterate, what would the impulse toward my literary impulse have become then? Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? You would have to find some way to shape whatever that impulse was, but maybe you don't. Maybe you feel for your entire life, not only bound by flesh, but bound in your mind, like you never find the way to speak the thing that is central to your own soul or psyche. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that too, that that as we live, if we're lucky, if we have our bellies full and a roof over our head and we have a chance to be educated or pick up an instrument or whatever the hell is, if we have a chance to do that, maybe you find um, a vehicle for the thing that is fundamental to your being. And that's why I feel fortunate. And you talking about gratitude earlier. That's mm-hmm. the thing for which I'm most grateful is that there are a million scenarios in which I don't 
ever become a writer. Mm. A million. I grew up in Philadelphia. The police were no joke in Philadelphia when I was growing up. There were cats killed. I could have been one of them, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there were all kinds of, and there was also a big gang thing in Philly when I was growing up. There are a million scenarios in which I'm one of the people that names they read out on black radio. Oh, this is the death list. They had, they had death counts every week up there. When, and this is in the 60s. People think gangs are the violent level of violence is bad now. It was pretty rough when I was growing up. Um, and so you can see a number of scenarios in which you do not become a writer or you do not live to see that moment when you, the lights go on in your own life. So I just feel grateful and uh, whatever talent I have, you know, you just feel thankful for it. I mean, I certainly can't claim complete credit for it. My mother, you know, read to us when we were children and all, I feel I owe everybody, you know, whatever little I know about language, I feel is rooted in about 90 other people. So, you know, you just hope you're a, a worthy vessel for whatever knowledge or wisdom or talent you have. I'm trying to think of the question that I have. Like, I'm, is there like a specific memory or story where you, in your adult life, have been like, Man, I'm so grateful that I have these tools of story and word because I'm going through this and like this is an important like I've, I'm really not on a professional level but on a personal level I'm grateful for the tools that I've invested in because I need them right now. Yeah, well I feel that way all the time actually. Mm -hmm. It's not I'm not sure there's a specific event you know. Sure. Mm -hmm. But I feel that way all the time. I mean. To be able to, to think quickly um, on your feet, you know, to, to someone ask you a question and ideas just kind of rain in and take shape in your mind, I feel like that's a talent I had nothing to do with developing. You know, now I've talked a lot in my life. Maybe that is a kind of practice, right? <laughs> but really, you, you, you uh, I'm just glad. I mean, when I, if when I, someone asks a question, my mind seems to say, and what about this? And this and this and this and this and this. And I, I, it feels like it comes unbidden. Like, I don't know if I have a hell of a lot of say in the way my mind operates, truthfully. I mean, but I can, I can choose to write or not write, I guess, but the, the, the kind of whirly in my head is just kind of in there. So I know it was a specific event. Sure. Um, it was just kind of the longer I've lived as, as a poet and a, and a person who loves words, and I, I love all the genres, you know, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, I love them all. The longer I've lived that way, the more grateful I feel for the ability to appreciate what it means to be conscious in this way. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious. I just, I, yeah. So here's the thing. I'm curious. Like, I got another question. Yeah. No, no. I just I got hella questions. Yeah, go ahead, Jose. Go ahead. Go ahead. Mine, mine is kind of going back to something earlier. Do you have anything building off of what you're talking about? Are you talking to me? Yeah. Oh, no. I wanted to ask Z and Tim about writing about bugs and writing about animals <laughs> and just like what's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You, could, you asked your question. That was it. I just, it's a unique opportunity. We got, like, two people who have extensive works about, like, either animals or, like, you know, non-human things. Yeah, I'm curious um, about what you're doing. I don't know. Oh, yeah. About animals and yeah, stuff. so, like, I, I really, um, well, my mother always told me never to write about bugs and never to write about those things. She was like, you know, people don't think you nasty and they don't think you got bugs in your house. That's and so, good. you know, I mean, but I, I guess they do. So I, but, like, I, I think, like, <laughs> You know, uh, the thing that I love so much about, like, being able to look at a thing and decide very arrogantly that it is me, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, that, like, mm -hmm. 
that I am the thing that I'm squishing, you know, like that, it, that on any given day, like you're talking about growing up in Philadelphia, like mm-hmm. on any given day, like, yeah, that would be me. That would be me part of this thing. And I, I feel like I, I love writing about stuff that's gross because I feel like there's so many things in the body that are gross. Mm-hmm. These embassies of nasty. <laughs> I feel like it's what they yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, they yeah. Like book title. Embassies uh-huh. of nasty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's chapel. right. Something, something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like I think it's I think it's just really I don't know, important for me to to decide that like I am that small and unusual. You know, I'll, I'll write about cockroaches a lot too, and it's just like these. I was actually I, a lot of things happened to me in these lifts. I was in a lift today, and the lift driver was started to ask me. He was like, um, why, "What do you feel about dung beetles?" He's like, "What what's good with them?" And I'm like, "Okay, uh, uh, not all bugs can get it. Like just the bugs that I encounter. Right, right, right. Dung beetles they don't happen here. Right, they're not they're not for me. But I, I think like you know something like small and grotesque." And absurd like those are some things like if I decide that like you know that's me as much as anything then I don't know things start to like open up in this way that that feels really fitting that feels really delicious yeah and I don't know I I, I think I started though very much started with my mom being like don't write about bugs so it is to, to your point Jose it is these little like um what did you? What did um Somas call them? Like I, want, I don't want to get the exact language that Somas right. called it, but it, it, the way I said it was polite disobediences. Yeah. I, I feel like, that really struck a chord with me. I feel like a lot of my poetry is polite or impolite disobediences. Like, <laughs> like it's they're, they're all just like, nah, nah, nah. And I, and I think like the bugs is a nah. It's like, no, I'm, this this thing is not beauty. It's not a beauty. The, the human body is not a beauty. I feel like there's so much there's so much I read that praises and praises, which we need, you know. But mm-hmm. I feel like I love the bugs for them being gross. I think we're gross. Mm-hmm. Grossness. Although the praise... Oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no. I just said that's interesting. I mean, I've I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm thinking about... I've been talking about Ross Gay a lot mm-hmm. with either you, Jose, or with Lauren. And, uh... Jose, will you tell that story about seeing Ross at, uh... at the cafe? yeah, yeah. So when I was living in New York, I was working at Urban Word NYC, and I had a favorite salad place that I would go to for lunch. And so, you know, I was, like, going into work on a Friday, and I stopped by my salad place, and I go upstairs, and I'm like, that man over there in the hoodie, like, looks familiar. And it's it's Ross Gay, and he's eating a salad, and he's finished the salad, and he's writing. And so we start talking, and and I'm like, well, what what are you doing up here? And Ross is like, well, you know, I'm just writing small poems for the things that bring me joy. Hmm. And uh, I started cracking up because I was like, of course you're writing small poems for the things that bring you joy. You know what I mean? Like, I could have, you didn't even have to tell me that. I could have, I could have guessed that. Uh, But I think about that answer and that like, man, yes, I'm so grateful that people are writing about the things that delight them and are writing these Mm. necessary odes and tributes. But that also is an answer that came from someone who wrote Bringing the Shovel Down. Mm -hmm. You know, which is not I don't think like praise is the number one word that you would use to describe some of the poems in that book, you know, that are Mm -hmm. grappling with very different human emotions than mm-hmm. just joy mm-hmm. as opposed to some of the other. So I do think there's like a relation or a different like pattern or waves of time where 
you know, it takes you two years to write a book, hmm. and all of the po- and none of the poems are joyful. And you're like, like I think about that in the book I'm working on right now. It's a much sadder book than mm-hmm. the first book that I wrote. And a part of me is like, oh God, is it? Am I broken or something like that? Or is like, <laughs> what happened? Mm. And I think the goal is like you look back from far away and you recognize these as like different phases of your life or different like specific things you had to excavate in order to get to the next spot. Yeah, imagine if all your poems were were happy or all your poems were sad. You know what I mean? I think you have to go do the whole dance. You know, you have to go through the whole thing. I mean, if you're fully awake, I mean, I think that's just part of it. Have you had that thought when you were writing a book where you're like, oh God, Everything in this book is this. Well, I, I I haven't had that feeling exactly, but but a lot of the poets that I really admired early in my reading life were people who seemed to have a variety of tone out tones in their work, and I always wanted that in my own work. So it's kind of become just part of the way I think about a collection. Now, this this new collection, One Turn on the Sun, is probably the most somber of the things I've ever written, mm-hmm. though there are moments, I hope, that are, are that that have uh, a lightness of heart in them, but it's 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 wrestling in some in some large part with the basically my parents are very old and they are dying, um, and that becomes a current throughout the book, both in terms of remembering their lives and remembering my life in relation to their lives, and also the fact that I am of them. I mean, you know, I have my father's jaw, I've got my mom's cheeks, you know, my father's hands, you know, what I mean, I've got all this stuff, so I am them kind of, and so so I'm working through this is I watch them in there in what is a, a pretty difficult time right now for them. And so you realize that the, the book has to be different from like my first book, which would have been Body Moves, which would have been in, in, in the late 80s when it comes out. And it's, it's largely about eros. It really is. It's not only about sex capital S, but I mean, it has lots of erotic components in it and much more play in it. But of course, I had, I had very little trouble in my life at that point. You know what I mean? I'm young. The world looks, I mean, to my very narrow vision like hey, it might work out after all maybe peace and coolness can can prevail um, whereas as you get older and you start to see the world and 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 how much resistance there is to sanity and kindness <laughs> it changes the dynamics <laughs> by which you live you know I like the resistance to sanity <laughs> sanity and kindness you know? like, no, no, stop resisting right. <laughs> please absolutely and so you realize certain books you know they demand they demand that you write them because you are you are both suffering in a particular way, but you're also witnessing suffering. You're witnessing a certain level of angst and sorrow in the world. So it'd be impossible to always write that book that was light, lighter, more light-hearted, or that was mostly focused on the little things that bring you joy. I mean, you couldn't only write that book. It would be dishonest, you know what I mean? So. Right. So I just think you just you battle what you battle. And, but speaking of insects, I know I never talked about that. I, I grew up, my brother <clears throat> was, I was five years younger than my brother, and he was always into insects and stuff. I mean, he'd catch them and put them in jars and look at them, and he, you know, he'd read books about them, and, hey, that's a, this kind of beetle, and that's this kind of insect, and that's that kind of ant, and that's that kind of you know, moth or whatever. And so I grew up completely, you know, wanting to be with my brother, you know, so I grew up kind of in love with insects, like, yeah, insects are fascinating, they're so strange, you know, and uh, I don't know, like, I don't know that I call them beautiful, all of them, but they are kind of amazing, I mean, when you think about it. 
I think in the, in the new book, there's a, the current, there's a number of references to ants throughout that book. And ants, you know, one thing is they, they outnumber human beings like a million to one. That's one thing, if not a billion to wow, one. You know, <laughs> there, are, there are so wow. many ants. People don't think about it, but they're everywhere, <laughs> all every continent. Crazy numbers, right? And they're always, they got colonies, they've got a hierarchy. You know, I don't know if they think the way we think, but they are organized, and they have they have wars, which is not admirable, but that is not certainly unlike us. They have them. Ants have wars. They have wars. Different colonies war with other colonies for territory. Yes, wow. they do. They got turf battles. <laughs> they do. Well, you love you love this. I will not go on about this because I could. No, there's please. A, there's, a, there's, there's, there's this really long border extending from like northern Mexico to northern California, mm-hmm. and there are these very very long-standing feuds going on between colonies along a particular line what <laughs> between those what? states. I mean, between the, from it's like a thousand miles, and there are a number of colonies of, of different kinds oh. of, of ants with different, you know, different uh, kings, queens, I guess, mm. and they are battling, and it's going on for decades. They're battling for this. Wow. <laughs> That's story. amazing. It's crazy. So disheartening. It's like, <laughs> I know. It's, but, but you can forgive them because they're largely bound by instinct, which we are not if we if we dare to, to, to take on what it means to have volition and free will. Mm. They don't have that, at least as far as we can tell, you know. Red ants, black ants generally don't get along. Unless, which happens occasionally, like one colony of black ants or red ants will, will take over another and they'll steal all their eggs and then they'll raise the red ants as black ants, even though they're red. They're red. Are you serious? Yes, I've seen this. Now, I've seen this with my own eyes. So you'll see a colony and you'll see black ants come out of the hole and red ants come out of the hole. And everybody's cool. Everybody's cool. The red ants and the black ants totally work together. But if you had a, a hill of red ants and a hill of black ants, they were war to the death. But whoever wins steals the eggs of the other colony and raises them as their own. And so you have red ants and black ants who, who are in the same colony. I have seen it. That's shady as It's hell. crazy, oh isn't it? God. It's crazy. Anyway, the other thing that fascinates me is, uh, is like that, that, that ants don't sleep. Like they Apparently they never sleep. Hmm. So they're just always awake. And I think so in the wintertime when they're underground, they're just sitting there like this. Just posted. Really? They don't? How is that even possible? (laughs) I mean, at least what people who have studied them, they said there's never a time when it appears that they're resting. They're just kind of on forever. That is insane. I just think it's so interesting, though. It's so fascinating that that these creatures are so different than we are. I mean, they, of course, they have eyes like we do, and they breathe out of this, they're, like their holes, they'd have holes here to breathe from. Like we breathe out of our mouth, but they breathe out of their sides. But they breathe air, and they see they see light by light, just like we do. So we're connected to them. That's the other thing that fascinates me, that we're linked to them evolutionarily, even though we're really different. They are our kinfolk, hmm. right? So uh, so that stuff, that kind of stuff is like tickles my brain a lot, too. I love it. Yeah, I think it's like that, that long, the Civil War thing, though, from like northern Mexico to northern California, that jam, I was reading about that thinking, 
this can't be real, right? But if you if you research it, you'll find it. A lot of people are like, yeah, there's this strange battle that's going on between these two extended colonies, I guess. That's crazy. Anyway, never mind. I mean, there's just so much to think about. Honestly, to be alive, like we've talked about the amount of books that you won't read, but there's just so much in the world to think about that I, like, never think about. I actually, I probably never would have remembered this unless you just said that about ants, but I do remember being in third grade and our teacher had us raise your hand if you think there are more ants than people and like everybody's hand went up and then she said raise your hand if you think there are more people than ants and it was just one dude his name is David Bigler I hope he doesn't listen to the podcast (laughs) but he like raised his hand very uh, happy about his answer and then she like said that there were more ants than people and he burst into tears. Oh, really? Oh and just, God. like, couldn't conceive it. He was like, but there are, I know so many people. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's funny, but yeah, there are many, many ants. Oh, that's so perfect. <laughs> yeah, I know you couldn't take it. No, we're not like, no. But that's so huge. Like, that's, I want to say that's so human, but that's yeah, just yeah. like, to be like, I know what I know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know this other thing. Let I can't imagine. Know. Jose, what were was like one of the other questions that you were thinking about? I guess I was curious. You know, Tim, you mentioned that uh, in the period like between college and the Fine Arts Center that that you were teaching. Right. When when you were teaching, you were you were a full time teacher. What what did right. you teach? What grade? I taught English. I taught um, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade English. Um, at, for a while at North Dallas High School, and then I spent two years at the Episcopal School of Dallas because they, they, you know, they made me an offer, and the money was really good. But, but it was not the kind of place I could stay. That's why I only lasted two years. It was just, you know, it was West, way, 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 very like a lot of really rich kids, sweet kids, but really rich kids. And you feel like these are kids who probably are going to do fine with or without you. <laughs> you know what I mean that you know they're you know, you know so I, I'm really appreciated more being in the inner city where you thought your presence would be much more meaningful in a certain kind of way. And this is not to say it wouldn't be meaningful in a nice suburban school, but I just thought, you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was just, I don't know, you just felt like you were more useful in a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I talked yeah. for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you were teaching, did you have a routine with writing? Did you wake up early? Like, how often did you write? I guess I'm curious because, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to figure out, you know, since since I graduated from college is, like, how to balance working a nine-to-five and, you know, sometimes hustling extra jobs yeah, to make tough. ends meet and, and still continue to write and, and develop a discipline with, with mm-hmm. writing. Yeah, well, I think what I did is I really wrote on the weekends. I really, I'm not, I mean, I think our first class started around, I think, 8, 10, I think. And it was really wildly unlikely that I was going to get up early enough to actually relax, get writing, and then get to go to school. So I just more or less gave in Monday through Friday to teaching and grading. And then Saturday morning and Sunday morning, I would work every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. And then we had the summers off. And so then I could work like a maniac. Now, mm-hmm. at the time, I was doing it because I just liked to write. I wasn't thinking, this is my commitment. I wasn't thinking that way, truthfully. I just wanted to be in poems, you know? So it wasn't like I was sitting around thinking, I better do this. It was just, I want to do it. I mean, I, th- I believe <laughs> I believe in poetry. So... 
Um, but that's yeah. something I can manage it when we had holidays, school holidays, and then the summer, which would give me three and a half months paid leave, really, because they, they divided your checks up over the whole year. So, you know, you didn't have to save. You just kind of picked up your check uh, all during the summer. What was one of your, like, while yeah. teaching, I, we've all taught high school, and mm-hmm. I feel like... Good. So, yeah, it's, it's, to join is absurd and fun and all the shit, but mm. I feel like I, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, what was one of the more... Absurd days of your teaching, because I've had, I've just had, I've had moments where it was just like, all right, I walked in and Lachey just cursed out this other chick because they called her. You know what I mean? Like I love those days. Too many, right? Um, the, the day this, one of the days that sticks out of my mind is, uh, uh, I was, you know, I was teaching. This is probably a tenth grade class, you know. So these are, you know, fifteen year olds, some sixteen year olds, and. Uh, I walked out in the hall for some reason. I mean, maybe I heard something, or I walked out in the hall to make sure, you know, maybe there was no one in the hall. I don't know what I did. And then I just hear, basically, it sounded like a bomb went off in the classroom, you know? I mean, it was just this wild clattering of noise, and I was like, oh, my God. I turn, I come in the classroom, and virtually every desk is turned over, and there are two dudes fighting in the middle of the room. And I was thinking, how did they do that much destruction in, like, four seconds? It was like the whole room exploded, you know? And that was like, I was like, oh, man. I was like, you know, they stopped because one guy really did have the upper hand. And I was like, I guess he felt insulted and insulted by the other dude, I guess. But so then we had to kind of rebuild the classroom, calm people down, get the principal and all that stuff. But that was the, one of the craziest moments because it seemed to be like everything seemed fine. I looked in the classroom. I just taken roll. I walked out in the hall. I mean, I was, wasn't out there more than 10 seconds. I mean, it was it happened so fast. So that one sticks in my mind. And then there are many, you know, lot, lots of, of other, you know, small things, some really sweet things, too, you know, um, students who really, really do end up, for whatever reason, caring about your class. You know, I got a student who's in English, yeah. became an English teacher, uh, he said, because he, because he was in my class when he was a 10th grader. And that's, that's lovely, but that's not the kind of absurdity you're talking about. That's just a sweet thing. But, um, but yeah, sometimes the, the kind of tensions that must have been present that I wasn't aware of, like, I... If you had said 10 seconds earlier, do you think there's a fight that's going to happen in your class? I said, no, everybody seems fine. <laughs> and then, as I said, boom, the whole thing went crazy. So, what, what about you? What did you, what kind of um, disorders did I, you run I just into? love, I love hearing, like, when, when poets, I think, like, what I love about poets is that, like, we have to do so many other jobs that are incorporate. And I, I think, like, uh, for me, you know, it was, like, a different thing every day. I was working at Harlem Children's Zone, and I remember just, like, you know, every any day you come in at three o'clock, it would be just like a different situation altogether. Um, I really want to tell this story that my friend um, Crystal Boson, Crystal Boson, shouts to you. She um, has this incredible story, and I want to get her on the podcast to talk about it. But she was teaching at this one spot in Dallas, and there was, um, you know, like that, everything seemed fine, everything was copacetic. Oh man, I don't know if I could tell this. I think we just got to have her on it. It's such <laughs> an epic, it's such an epic story. I mean, we, Crystal, we're gonna. It's a cliffhanger for y'all. Come, come mm-hmm. through to the next episode. We're gonna have Crystal on the podcast because yeah. this ah, oh, it's Sounds great. It's very, very excellent. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, yo, there I, there were just so many. I love like the fits of absolute rage. You know what I mean? Like I remember like one day at Harlem Children's Zone, this one student 
you know, heard that some other person that, like, called her a thought, like, in the 10th grade, and she heard tell her through the grapevine, and she went into the math class, and she was like, I know you didn't just call me that, like, looked at him dead in the face, she was like, you have to take it back, you have to take it back now, and I was just like, this is incredible, this is how it should be, mm-hmm. if you hear someone call you something, you gotta go <laughs> face them, mm-hmm. but she, like, completely went off, buck on the class, it's beautiful, and he didn't take it back, you know, she still had the name stuck to her, but, mm-hmm. like, I came in, and I was like, it was dead in the room. I was like, well, what happened? What happened to, to Shorty? And they were just like, well, you know, and she called her a thought. They called her a thought. And this was like the worst thing in the world. And, and I love just like how grave it is. Mm-hmm. I love how you have to like, you know, manage manage it afterward. It's. Mm-hmm. I think there's something just very like gorgeous about it. Well, yeah. Well, also because the thing. I mean, I talk to my. I try to talk to my my uh, students about this at the college level. My grad students, especially, like there's a way in which at that age that you're talking about, emotion is still emotion kind of rules in yeah. a lot of ways. And at a certain point, we get way too good at managing our feelings, and so they get buried and twisted and pushed down in weird ways. But at at that age, a lot of kids just like, man, it's just like it's just right below the surface, you know. And if someone insults you or hurts your feelings, man, it just comes out clean, you know, which can be dangerous, clean, yeah. of course. But at the same time, as you said, there's something really at least honest about it. Yeah. It doesn't. It's, there's not much conniving about that. It's just like they, you get pissed off, you just go off, you know. Mm-hmm. And there is something cool about that. That's not how adults. Generally speaking, live their lives. Yeah, we need more sneaky. swing sets and, and lashing out. Yeah. Just like <laughs> it, would, it might simplify life in some ways. Maybe it would diffuse some things that would get much more deadly. I don't know, but I, I understand what you mean. I think people wait until they can say it cleanly, mm-hmm. you know, and they. And then if it never comes and they can't, then it stays in the body, yeah, you know? Yeah, it becomes like a, yeah, a, a bug in your head. Speaking of bugs, a bug in your body. I was teaching uh, at a school uh, in Williamsburg <clears throat> last year, and a lot of the young people in that class were really, like, using the poetry as a vehicle to express pretty much uh, just rage, you know? Like, mm-hmm. untempered sure. rage at any number of things. And, uh, and this... One young lady was like, "Hey, I really want to share this, but I like kind of don't think I should share it." Cause, and I was like, "Why?" And I was, she was, I was like, "Is it about someone in here?" And she was like, "Yeah, it's about someone in the class." And I was like, "Okay, you know, like maybe not or something. You know, like maybe not. Maybe maybe you should think about what that effect will be and how that person might feel." And ultimately, she chose not to share. But then, the other person who I didn't know who it was about but another person was nervous about sharing and did share and she read a poem that was clearly directed at the young lady who did not share mm. and so she had read like a full list of like you think you're this but you're this you think you're this but you're oh, this and like mm. the class erupted and the first lady was like John you have to let me respond you have to let me share mm. And I was like, that's so fair, and I can't, you know, like, and I just, like, can't. I'm a visiting teaching artist right now, and my job is not to, like, escalate. (laughs) But there was a part of me that was like, man, this format of airing grievances, Mm. one after the other, and then... Could be good. Yeah, it's good, and then, of course, you know, it kind of, like, spilled over... And then the next week, 
I was like really expecting it to be tense, mm. and they were like, "Oh no, we like each other now." <laughs> oh, yeah, and you're like, "Oh man, there's really something to learn about that." Yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. Maybe, Sounds maybe. like y'all cleared the air. <laughs> maybe, man. I'm, I'm glad that all y'all have taught high school. Though. That's fantastic. I'm always telling people, "You got to go teach high school. You got to be in there. We need people in there who really want to teach because so many people seem to be in those classrooms by default. Like, well, I couldn't do anything else. Mm. So uh, I'm like, and the kids can feel that they can tell if you don't really want to be there. They can tell. Mm -hmm. They know if you don't really like them, Mm -hmm. if you're just kind of putting up with them, they can tell all that. It changes the whole dynamics of education. That's I'm like, please, please go in the classroom. Please love these teenagers because somebody's got to do it, you know? Should we cap it? You guys got more? No, it's a lot. (laughs) We've talked a lot. It's been great. Jose, you got got anything else? Oh, let's uh, thank you so much. That was great. It was yeah. fun. Yeah. I knew it would be. I can tell when we talked yesterday, it was going to be a blast to talk to y'all. <laughs> uh, you guys should definitely get Tim Siebel's new book. It's called One Turn Around the Sun. It's uh, out on Etruscan Press. It's going to be a really, really great book for you. You shan't be sorry. Uh, <laughs> you should tune in. Is it, is it out now? Yeah, it's out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's out. Uh, yes, indeed. Wait, I gotta go get that. And stay tuned because we have a live show uh, coming up at Vassar College with Patricia Smith. It's going to be really, really oh, incredible. So keep your ears perked for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anything else that y'all want to promote? That be that, yo. Stay on the lookout. on the internet yeah you should follow us on twitter at the poetry gods you'll easily be able to find the rest of our twitter handles there jose is a real joy to follow on twitter right now he's kind of jose you're kind of in your prime right now you're in your twitter prime that's hilarious i I don't know how to feel about that i I appreciate it i work hard on my twitter bars Jose tweeted his AWP schedule. He was like, hey, everybody, if you're at AWP this week, come see me. My hours are Wednesday to Saturday, Chicago. Yes. <laughs> Chicago, Chicago, truly over everything. Stop uh, by. <laughs> That's funny. Or, you know what I'm saying? If you're in the city of Chicago, say hello. I'm, I'm up here. Although I won't be here the next three weekends. I'll be uh, in New York mostly, I think. Kicking it. Yeah. Can't get enough. Huh. Can't get enough New York. Yeah. It's true. It was great, Jose, talking to you, man. Jose, it was, was I said it was great, great talking to you and hearing your voice, man. Oh man, it's so good to talk to you. Thank you, thank you for, for sitting down with us. I really wish I could be there in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I do too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to all of our great sponsors. Shout mm-hmm. out to Squarespace. Shout out to Mailchimp, you know what I mean? Mailchimp. <laughs> <laughs> and Nutbox. That's all I got. And, and Nature Drake. Box. Yeah, Nature and Box. Drake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We keep That's it. Drake. And Drake, you know what yeah. I mean? Our, the only person we follow on Twitter is Drake. That's not actually true anymore, but I kind of wish it was true, you know? <laughs> we can always adapt. We can always make it happen. <laughs> yeah, don't be surprised if we unfollow everyone. Unfollowing. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to play the song. You ready, Jose? Yeah, <laughs> 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 <laughs>
This is called Commercial Break, Roadrunner, Uneasy. If I didn't know better, I'd say the sun never moved ever. That somebody just pasted it there and said the hell with it. But that's impossible. After a while, you have to give up those conspiracy theories. I get the big picture. I mean... How big can the picture be? I actually think it's kind of funny. That damn coyote always scheming, always licking his skinny chops. And me, pure speed, the object of all his hunger, the everything he needs. Talk about impossible. Talk about the grass is always greener. I am the other side of the fence. You've got to wonder, at least a little, if this could be a setup. With all the running I do, the desert, the canyons, the hillsides, the desert. All this open road has got to lead somewhere else. I mean, that's what freedom's all about, right? Ending up where you want to be. I used to think it was funny. Roadrunner, the coyote's after you. Roadrunner. Now, I'm mainly tired. Not that you'd ever know. I mean, I can still make the horizon in two shakes of a snake's tongue. But it never gets easier out here alone with Mr. Big Teeth and his acme supplies. Leg muscle vitamins, tiger traps, instant tornado seeds... Come on, I'm no tiger. And who's making all this stuff? I can't help being a little uneasy. I do one of my tricks, a rock-scorching razor turn at 600 miles an hour, and he falls off the cliff, the coyote. He really falls. I see the small explosion, his body slamming into dry dirt so far down in the canyon, the river looks like a crayon doodle. That has to hurt, right? Five seconds later, he's just up the highway, hoisting a huge anvil above a little yellow dish of bird feed. Like I don't see what's going on. Come on! You know how sometimes, even though you're very serious about the things you do, it seems like, secretly, there's a big joke being played and you're part of what someone else is laughing at, only you can't prove it, so you keep sweating and believing in your career as if that makes the difference, as if somehow playing along isn't really playing along, as long as you're not sure what sort of fool you're being turned into, especially if you're giving it 100%. So... When I see dynamite tucked under the Acme Roadrunner cupcakes, as long as I don't wonder why my safety isn't coming first in this situation, as long as I don't think me and the coyote are actually working for the same people, as long as I eat 
and get away. I'm not really stupid, right? I'm just fast. 